everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today, we are going to be diving into a story that I would bet money on that most of you have never heard of. We're going to be covering a woman named Clementine Barnabas and the Voodoo Murders. So if you caught last week's episode, we dove into witchcraft and Wicca quite a bit and talked about Gerald Garner. Well, this week we're going to dive into voodoo a little bit and give you a little bit of history on voodoo just in general, because voodoo is another one of those topics that I think is very often misunderstood. And, you know, what is portrayed as voodoo in the media and in movies is really not accurate to, you know, how voodoo is actually practiced. So we're going to be talking about a very, very brutal, uh, really true crime case today that involves this Clementine Barnabet. But before we get into that, I wanted to remind you that one way you can help support the show is if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, it really does help us out, especially if you're just a YouTube viewer out there that enjoys watching the show on YouTube. Unfortunately, the YouTube views don't really count towards sort of our overall rankings in the podcast world. So if you just take a minute and head over to Apple Podcasts and make sure you're subscribed, even if you don't ever listen to the audio version only, we'd greatly appreciate it and vice versa. If you're an audio listener and you've never checked out the show on YouTube, Joel actually spends quite a bit of time on the YouTube uh, sort of version of the show and putting in overlay of a lot of different clips and and images and really just creates a visual experience uh, to go along with every episode. So and it's always nice to put a name to a face if you haven't too. seen me and Josh yet. Then that too. Come hang out on YouTube. Absolutely, that'd be really cool if you come check us out on YouTube. You can just search "Lights Out Podcasts." We'll have the links below for you as well. But this episode of "Lights Out" is brought to you by Honey and Higher Love Wellness, and more on that later. But let's go ahead and just jump right into the story. So to begin, we're going to start by talking about voodoo a little bit, because voodoo as we know it today became popular in Haiti during the 1500s. And the roots of voodoo's origins have been around since the beginning of civilization practically, even up to 10,000 years ago. Its origins began somewhere in West Africa, possibly the country of Benin, where the word voodoo means spirit. Yet many of its rituals and traditions have changed greatly since introduced to the Americas. Voodoo was a way for Haitians and many Africans to come together during the slave trading boom of North America. Slave traders tried to cut any social ties between the slaves and any sense of community was often lost as a result. So the practices of voodoo were the slaves' response to all that. And they tried to retain any sense of community during these times, which I think is very understandable that you would need, you know, whether it's religion or some type of practice to sort of help you keep the faith and keep your you know, your family or community together. That's exactly what they did. During the countless years of the slave trade, the Haitians and Africans began including their own gods and rituals into the ancient traditions of voodoo. Many traditions have changed throughout the earliest years. Its practices, as well as its darker depictions of evil and malicious deeds, have often been distorted. In movies and television, we most often see vile interpretations Concealed in dark rooms, dolls are poked with needles, and blood sacrifices are made to the gods. And media in the 1900s went wild with these representations of voodoo. 
and by the end of the century, voodoo followers were forced to practice underground. True followers of voodoo, though, frown upon these depictions. Yet on occasion, no matter how far-fetched, dark and morbid realities often come true. And voodoo still lives in the U.S. today. In the South, it's often known as the New Orleans voodoo, or Louisiana voodoo. And it was brought to this region by slaves between 1719 and 1731. Much more of its influence came after 1791, once the slaves revolted in Haiti and fled to Louisiana. Their specialties were herbs and poisons, along with the creation of charms and amulets that were believed to protect themselves and others from harm. And these trinkets became the main focal point of Louisiana voodoo. These special items were called wangas, and they had either good or evil purposes depending on what they were made of. Many of the evil wangas contained a toxic root brought to Louisiana from an African tree, a cursed fig tree. This root was then ground up and combined with bones, nails, and religious relics, such as holy water, candles, incense, and crucifixes. Many of the slaves' spiritual beliefs were influenced by their slave owners, so rituals and relics often made their way into voodoo practices. At its peak in American culture during the 1800s, a woman by the name of Marie Laveau became the most famous voodoo priestess across the nation. As a free woman of color and a devout Catholic, she spent much of her time feeding the hungry, nursing the sick, visiting prisoners, and helping slaves navigate their way to freedom. Working as a hairdresser, obviously the locals throughout New Orleans confided in her and told her a lot of things, and her rapport with them made her extremely popular, even famous. And she then began offering her voodoo services of healing to her clients. From her selfless lifestyle and dedication to voodoo practices, she soon became known as the Voodoo Queen of New Orleans. She performed exorcisms and offerings to spirits, and she treated many people's ailments with teas, herbs, salves, and tinctures. People from all over the city of all different colors and backgrounds came to see Marie Laveau for healing. And her dedication to her beliefs and practices inspired many others to follow the voodoo faith. And by the 1900s, many devout followers in the American South, especially cities within Louisiana, upheld voodoo traditions that their ancestors had passed down to them. Some kept to themselves and focused on the physical and spiritual healing of their religion. Yet others found themselves on the darker side of history buying voodoo conjure bags, seeking supernatural powers in order to carry out horrific murders for their cult of sacrifice, bending tradition and religion into a sick and twisted murder fantasy. That's a very brief overview of voodoo and sort of the history behind it. Like I said, it goes back thousands and thousands of years. So maybe in a future episode, I can dive into voodoo much deeper than I just did and really you know, get to the root of where it began. But this is where our story begins. One afternoon in January of 1911, in West Crowley, Louisiana, a man by the name of Walter Byers did not show up to work at the local rice mill. A neighbor knocked on the door of his small shack home, and no one answered. It appeared that no one was home. Authorities eventually came to inspect the house, and what they found would open up one of the darkest stories Louisiana would ever see. The most depraved side of American voodoo just revealed itself. When they reached the bedroom of the house, there they found Walter, his wife, 
and his six-year-old son brutally murdered. All of their heads were bashed in. They were bludgeoned so badly, the authorities barely recognized them. Blood and brain matter were scattered across the room. A bucket of blood sat in the corner, and a red-stained axe rested at the foot of the bed. In the report of the crime scene, one investigator said that the family had been brained with an axe. With no sign of a break-in, authorities thought that the suspect had snuck in through the window at night and killed them all as they slept. But for what reason? The pale-faced authorities had no idea why someone would want to commit such a heinous crime. Little did they know that this would be one of many in a string of sacrificial killings. Sensational headlines made their way to the front page of local newspapers, and soon enough entire neighborhoods were in fear for their lives. One month after the brutal murders of the Byers family, February 24, 1911, in Lafayette, Louisiana, Nina Martin woke up to the crow of the rooster on a seemingly regular morning. Around 7 a.m., her son burst through the front door of their small shack and ran into the kitchen to find her. He screamed that Nina's sister had been murdered. In disbelief, Nina went to see for herself, and sure enough, her nightmare became a reality. In the bedroom of her sister's home lay the dead bodies of her sister's entire family, again almost unrecognizable from the bludgeoning to their heads. Her sister Mimi, the husband Alexander Andrus, and their two children died. Blood spattered the walls and soaked the bedsheets. All were beaten, and their skulls were crushed by the blade of an axe that rested at the foot of the bed. And with no time to spare yet again, a month after the murders of the Andrus family, Another family of four. The Cassaways were found murdered in their bedrooms in Beaumont, Texas, not far from the border of Louisiana. Investigators quickly suggested that there should be no coincidence to these murders happening in a similar fashion and so close to each other. Investigators quickly had a full plate and began working night and day to find the culprits. The Lafayette Sheriff, Luis Lacoste, also a Louisiana native and a blacksmith in his youth, went hard to work on the case of the Andrus family that had occurred in his city of Lafayette, Louisiana, and many connections were quickly pieced together between the murders. The victims were always an entire family, usually between four to six people, and most of the murders occurred in the bedrooms, and always at night. The victims were killed with a blow to the head by an axe, and the victims lived in poorer neighborhoods, and almost all the victims were black. Only one victim was white, the wife of Cassaway, and although the suspicion of the hate crime was considered, investigators could not put their finger on a motive. Sheriff Luis Lacoste, after some investigating, suspected that the culprit was Raymond Barnabet, a middle-aged black man who lived in Lafayette. After he arrested Raymond Barnabet and brought him in for questioning, he did not have enough evidence to hold him, so he had to release his prime suspect. Yet not long after, he arrested Raymond again. And by October 1911, a grand jury indicted Raymond for the murders of the Andrus and Byers families. And on October 19th, he was put on trial. His entire family, including Nina Porter, his wife, Clementine Barnabet, his daughter, and Zephyrin Barnabet, his son, all testified against him in court. His wife Nina claimed that on the night of the Andrus family murders, Raymond caught a train around 7 p.m., but didn't arrive home until 2 a.m. the next morning. He was agitated and angry at the fact that she had not saved him anything to eat for dinner, 
and that he had lost his pipe on his mysterious journey. His daughter Clementine's story didn't exactly line up with her mother's testimony, as Clementine claimed that her father hadn't come home until closer until sunrise, and after he did return, he had been smoking his pipe all throughout the house, the same pipe that her mother had claimed was missing. Then he demanded his dinner, saying that he was hungry after he had just murdered an entire family. He then threatened both her and her brother, saying that if they were to tell anyone, he would kill them too. His son Zephyrin's story also had inconsistencies compared with his sister's and mother's testimonies. He claimed his father had returned home covered in blood and brain matter, and after demanding his dinner, Raymond claimed that he had killed the whole Anders family. Zephyrin then turned to the judge and pleaded that his father remain behind bars. Raymond Barnabet had a history of excessive drinking and violence within their home. Clementine also echoed her brother's statement, saying that she too feared her father. In an attempt to establish the credibility of the Barnabet family, their neighbors were brought in to testify. Because the court wanted to hear, you know, if the Barnabet family really was who they said they were. The neighbors claimed that the Barnabet children were clean, modest people, and that the court could trust their stories. Yet according to other local families, they were seen as degenerates and constantly up to no good. At the end of the trial, the all-white jury convicted Raymond Barnabet of murder. His defense quickly appealed and stated that Raymond was drunk during the proceedings and not competent enough to demonstrate a proper defense. In addition, they claimed that the prosecutors failed to provide a motive for the murders and no one could explain why anyone would want to commit these heinous crimes. So, Raymond Barnabet was then granted a new trial and he waited in jail until his new trial could be scheduled. But while he remained behind bars another slew of murders occurred. On November 26, 1911, the entire Randall family was mutilated. Norbert, his wife, their three children, and their nephew were all killed in the same way as the other families. Another bloody series of axe murders with their heads bashed in. Yet this time a single bullet wound was found in Norbert's head. A coroner reported that Norbert was shot in the head after the culprit had already killed him with an axe. And with Raymond Barnabet still in jail, it was clear that the murderer or murderers were still on the loose. Frustrated with his failures, Sheriff Luis Lacoste resorted to the old detective's trick of following a hunch. Knowing that the other townspeople had low opinions of the Barnabet children, as they were given the titles filthy and degenerate around town, on top of the inconsistent testimonies they had given during Raymond's trial, Sheriff Lacoste pursued the children. Zephyrin provided an alibi for the night of the murders, which checked out. But as for Clementine, during the investigation of her father, she had blood on her clothes, which she claimed that her father had wiped on them. This never sat right with Sheriff Lacoste, though. So following his hunch, he found Clementine at a friend's house. And after a short trip to use the restroom, he found again more of Clementine's clothes stained in blood. Deputies immediately arrested Clementine and searched the family's home. And there they found an entire woman's outfit, soaked in blood and covered in human brain, purging any further doubt from Sheriff Lacoste's mind. They took Clementine to jail and charged her with murder. While interrogating her, she began laughing hysterically and out of control. And when she finally settled down, she explained that she had absolutely nothing to do with the murders. And no matter how deep they searched, 
investigators couldn't find no motive for the murders. They were also not convinced that Clementine would have the ability to carry out these murders alone. Before we continue with Clementine's story, and if there are other killers, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. So now with Clementine and her father in jail, in January 1912, three more families were murdered in the same gruesome way as the others. At first, investigators considered that these murders could have been committed by a copycat killer, yet one piece of evidence suggested otherwise. As a single piece of evidence had been withheld by the police during the entire investigation, to keep the locals calm, as well as a way to connect the dots for future murders, the investigators never told the public about the dead children's hands. After the murders took place, and the entire family was splayed across their beds, the killer, or killers, then took the children's hands and spread them apart with small pieces of wood. Since the public did not know about this, the murders of January 1912 could not have been a copycat. At the crime scene of the third house, the Broussard family lied in a pool of their own blood. A bucket had been placed under the children's bed, slowly collecting the seepage of dark blood that flowed from the mattress. The three children's hands were splayed with small pieces of wood, and written on the wall was the King James Bible verse, Psalm chapter 9, verse 12, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And below the message was signed, The Human Five. The investigators then believed multiple murderers were at work, and the press coined them the Human Five Gang. After this revelation became public, local publications began making claims of evil voodoo practices at work. They printed images of snakes, a common symbol in voodoo lore, killing small children. And if you look at the picture they put in the newspaper, it's actually quite terrifying to think that they would put this out to the public. I mean, you're going to spark more fear than was already yeah. there in the first place. I mean, the snake is literally suffocating. Yeah, it's what strangling to be a, a baby. Ch- yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're going to freak people out. God. Much speculation began as to what the Human Five actually meant. Was it a gang of murderers? Was it meant to coincide with the number of victims at each scene? Or did it have something to do with some religious perversion? Did it correlate to the splaying of children's hands? And quickly, rumors began to circle that Clementine Barnabet led a cult called the Church of Sacrifice. Sheriff Lacoste began working within the theory that a religious organization might have been behind the killings. So he began investigating the Christ-Sanctified Holy Church, a local Pentecostal church of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Through the grapevine, rumors suggested that Reverend King Harris, a revival preacher with a small congregation at the Christ-Sanctified Holy Church, was involved somehow with an underground cult. He followed this lead and arrested the reverend, not only to bring him in for questioning, but to also protect him from the growing anger of the townspeople. After being brought in for questioning several more times, the reverend vehemently denied having anything to do with the murders. He said that the idea of his teachings being connected to acts of violence and murder unsettled him. Reverend King Charles cooperated fully with the police and told them that the Church of Sacrifice did exist. They functioned as an unofficial section of the Christ-sanctified Holy Church, but he was unaware of any heinous activity being done. Sheriff Lacoste was at a loss. He had no clue where his investigation was headed, and what he feared most was that he was at a dead end. With not much to go on, the investigation was at a standstill. 
Sheriff Lacoste hoped that with the cult leader in jail that no more murders would occur. Public outcry within black neighborhoods of Louisiana made its way to the forefront. And in the small town of Brobridge, a predominantly poor black town in Louisiana, entire neighborhoods armed themselves with weapons and stayed awake throughout the night. They would not rest, knowing that they could easily be killed in their sleep. In February 1912, a congregation of black residents met at Lafayette Baptist Church and organized assistance to local authorities with the intention of full cooperation. Any information the people had was handed over to the police in hopes that they could catch the killers. But not nine days after his meeting at the Baptist Church, despite having Reverend King Charles behind bars, another family murder occurred in Beaumont, Texas, just past the Louisiana border. With nothing more for investigators to go on, in addition to his full cooperation, the Reverend was released from jail. With fear and panic at their peak, a bit of relief soon arrived. After sitting in jail for several months, on April 2nd, 1912, Clementine Barnabet confessed to 17 murders. The Lafayette Advisor newspaper published her confession in full three days later. She declared that she had killed families in Lafayette, Rain, and Crowley. In her formal confession, she said that she had taken a trip to New Iberia, a city just southeast of Lafayette, where she and her friends met an old man who sold them voodoo trinkets. The old man claimed that the items would make them undetectable and protect them from the law as long as they remained in their possession. They bought each of the trinkets for $3 apiece and returned to Lafayette the same night. It was then that Clementine and her friends began discussing the potentials of their new findings. They wondered if their new voodoo trinkets would protect them, even in the instance of murder. With a hint of disbelief in their power, some of the group returned to New Iberia and asked the old man once again about their powers. He guaranteed that they would always work and claimed they would protect them under any circumstance. And with this understanding of the trinket's powers, she decided to test them out one night in the fall of 1909, about two years before the infamous Andrus family murders. Clementine and her friends drew lots to see who would try first, similar to drawing a name out of a hat. She then went to her sister's place in Rain, Louisiana, near the railroad depot. She went into town disguised as a man and found an axe in the yard near the cabin of her first victims. On future killings, she knows that most people had an axe on the premises, so that became her weapon of choice. When she got to the house, she saw that it was lit and could easily see inside where she spotted her first victim, a woman sleeping. After entering the home, she swung the heavy axe down into the woman's head, killing her instantly. At the sound of a cracking skull, the woman's son awoke, but before he could raise his head from the pillow, Clementine struck the boy too just around his left ear, and he died instantly as well. Two more children slept nearby, and she finished them off the same way. In her confession, she explained that she was carrying out quote-unquote work, and that this was not for pleasure or for some other reason. This is what she considered was her duty. These first killings set the standard for every other murder to come. After she made sure every person in the house was dead, she removed her disguise and left the clothes in the house. She returned to her sister's and boarded a night train back to Lafayette. Once she returned, she told her friends that she had completed her work. And after watching the aftermath of the murders in the newspapers, 
The friends all agreed that the voodoo trinkets must have worked. Clementine was never caught for those murders. She said that she killed indiscriminately, and she didn't target men, women, or children. And when asked why she killed the children, she said that she killed them so they would not have to live their lives as orphans. She also admitted to caressing the corpses of the people she had just killed. And when asked if there was an agreement to keep these killings a secret among the group, she said yes, there had been. But she wanted to confess because she wanted to have a clear conscience, after all. She went on to confess to the rest of her murders. Many of the times she was not alone in her work. But given the nature of her lying, especially during her father's trial, many took her words with a grain of salt. Even the newspaper that published her confession, the Lafayette Advisor, went on to say at the end of the article, Clementine's confession has been received with varying shades of belief, owing to the positive way she swore in the trial of her father and the misleading information she has given as to her accomplices. Although Sheriff Lacoste arrested many others before and after Clementine's confession, not much came of it. Clementine stood as their prime suspect in the killings and the only one to confess to any of the murders. Two weeks after her confession, investigators found another family, the Burtons, murdered in the same fashion as Clementine's M.O. All were killed with an axe to the head. And with so much frenzy in the local news, authorities suspected that the new murders were either more activity from the sacrificial cult or copycats inspired by the previous killings. The Burtons were killed in San Antonio, Texas, which is quite far from Lafayette, Louisiana. But similar murders had already been occurring across the Texas-Louisiana border. If anything, this meant that the scope of the Church of Sacrifice could have been much larger than first suspected. And despite their follow-up with Clementine's claims that many others had been involved in the killing sprees, investigators only found more dead ends. With so much distrust surrounding her claims, it was difficult to keep her story straight. Even the existence of the actual Church of Sacrifice had been impossible to prove. After Clementine gave investigators the name of the man who sold her the voodoo invisibility charm, a man by the name of Joseph Thibodeau, he denied any involvement. She also claimed that he was the one that gave her the idea to commit the murders in the first place. When they found and interrogated Joseph, he claimed to be a simple voodoo priest whose interests lie in root-based medicine and nothing more. Despite all the mistrust surrounding her confession, the district attorney, Howard Bruner, believed Clementine to be a moral pervert and guilty of the murders. On April 14, 1912, the DA officially charged Clementine Barnabet with murder, and as she sat in jail awaiting her trial, she confessed to a total of 35 murders. Can you believe that? Absolutely insane. And that's hard for me to believe because... To me, I feel like she could just be taking the rap for everybody else who was involved with it since she was already yeah, caught. It, it really makes me think that there was probably other killers yeah. associated with this church of sacrifice. Because right. it just seems like based on the way that she would conduct the killings, there's just no way that she would have been caught or right. she would have been able to get away with that many without being And being in all the these police. different places at once. Yeah. Or not at once, but within a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah, geographically. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I think also it's just the time period, too. I mean, the early 1900s, the police were <laughs> very few and far between. Yeah. They they were really weren't that good at murder investigations no. at this time, especially like serial killings like this. On October 25th, 1912, Clementine Barnabet went to trial for the murder of Norbert Randall's wife. 
Her defense attorneys insisted that Clementine was insane and not fit for trial. They even requested a formal psychiatric evaluation, and three different psychiatrists evaluated her, and all of them deemed that she was not insane and was fit for trial. The courtroom was completely crowded with local spectators waiting to see the murders of Clementine Barnabet finally come to an end. Within four days, Clementine was found guilty and convicted of murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison. They did not sentence her to death because she was only 17 years of age at the time of the murders, which to me only raises more suspicion that she likely did not act alone. It does. Doing all this at 17 years old, I mean, it's kind of unheard of, honestly. But I guess not impossible. And after her conviction, not one month later, in the small town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, William Walmsley, along with his wife and child, were found dead in their homes. Allegedly, they were ex-members of the Church of Sacrifice and left before the string of murders began. With his daughter sentenced to prison, Raymond Barnabet was released from jail along with his son Zephyrin, and neither were ever heard from again. And by 1913, all the murders had stopped. The Human Five Gang was never discovered, and the only one to serve time for these horrific crimes was the young voodoo priestess, Clementine Barnabet. Within her first year inside the penitentiary, Clementine found herself restless and desired the outside world once again. In July of 1913, she attempted to escape Angola State Penitentiary, but was caught. After this one attempt, she decided to abide by the ways of prison life, and the prison officials eventually saw her transform into a model prisoner. According to a brief report regarding the prison, Clementine received an undisclosed procedure within the prison walls, and the procedure intended to restore her to normal condition. It was not a lobotomy, since that controversial procedure wouldn't become standardized until several decades later, so we may never known what procedure was actually done to Clementine. After her operation, though, they released her from prison on good behavior after serving 10 years at Angola State Penitentiary. And after this, she was never heard from again. That's so unbelievable. Like I know. She what? kills 35 people and then just serves 10 she? years. Or, or did she? I mean, maybe she didn't kill all of them. Yeah. But I would think she'd be behind bars for the rest of her life. Yeah. Or, what happened to life in prison? Oh, man. Times so they must are, have been pretty confident in this procedure, whatever it was. My yeah. guess is it was some type of lobotomy of mm. some sort. You know, before a lobotomy became a lobotomy, they probably were doing screwy things with people's yeah. brains still. Could be. It's what, what I'm guessing. I mean, if, it must have kind of turned her into like, you know, this like vegetative state mm-hmm. or like just a dumbed down version of who she once was. So they're like, she's not, you know, a threat to society anymore. Yeah. She could have appeared completely harmless afterwards yeah. or she was just extremely good at manipulation. And then just to all of the, all the Barnabas just disappeared. That's interesting too. They're yeah. just like gone. Seems like they were all in it. Yeah, seems like they were probably all involved with the killings. But it's also interesting to me that former members of the Church of Sacrifice also ended up dead. So that really makes me think that yeah. there's absolutely more yeah. killers out there that were doing these these brutal slayings. But despite the controversy surrounding voodoo, its rituals and traditions are still practiced today. The cultures and customs live on, especially in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana. The Voodoo Spiritual Temple, a quaint building that blends into the architecture of the city, is New Orleans' only official voodoo temple. It sits across the street from Congo Square, once a gathering place for enslaved Africans where they practice their traditions of drum circles and spiritual ceremonies. And today it acts as an open space famous for being a gathering place 
for African-American jazz musicians. For many, voodoo is seen as a cultural staple in Louisiana, and it will forever be a part of its historical roots. At its core, voodoo intends to benefit whoever practices its rituals. And over the decades, the influence of Catholicism has transformed voodoo since it was first introduced to North America. Peace, health, and prosperity are some of its foundational goals. Yet for every community of goodwill, evil lurks not far behind. In the shadows of depravity, the killings of Clementine Barnabet have cast everlasting fear into the hearts of everyone who hears the word voodoo. The splaying of dead children's hands with small wooden rods, invisibility charms seething with supernatural powers, the metal buckets beneath bed frames collecting the blood of victims draining from the mattress, entire families murdered with their heads smashed in and their brain matter dripping down the wall beside them, or a bloodied axe resting at the foot of the bed. When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. These are the corrupted images of voodoo. As many as 35 dead, both men, women, and children, and only one person was ever convicted for these crimes, despite evidence pointing to more than one. These killings may have been the work of an entire cult of sacrifice, and with dozens of bodies in her wake, Clementine Barnabet only spent 10 years in prison for her heinous deeds. Or maybe she didn't do any of it. You know, people confess to things all the time. I mean, we saw with Son of Sam. Right. You get situations with cults like this where somebody takes the fall Mm -hmm. for somebody else to protect the rest of the group. And that's what I really think is happening here is this is a larger cult group of killers that all kill for whatever reason for their rituals Mm -hmm. and clementine just was sort of you know the one that took the fall for it right i have a hard time believing she would go into homes Mm -hmm. and be able to murder the husband the wife the kids to have all that strength and quickness i just don't see that possible no but you know you never woke up a single one of them how or none of them tried to like fight back right or anything like that so to me it seems very unbelievable that she carried out all these killings by herself i think maybe she did one or two or a couple Mm mm-hmm but I think she was really the fall person for yeah. the whole church. And I think the the cults or who she was with, you know, saw that she was under 18. They probably she, knew. She would make a good t- target because it's she's a good point. Yeah. Like could be treated as a juvenile. Yeah. I mean, they probably thought that, you know, she probably won't get that much time mm-hmm. because she is under 18 years old. So kind of, I mean, they're playing yeah. kind of work. Playing the system. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely taking advantage of the system. So, thought this was a really interesting story and and case because it's it's virtually unsolved for this many many deaths i mean they they've attributed it to clementine barnabet but Mm -hmm. there's you know great possibility that there was other people involved that were never brought to justice or we just have no idea who they were or maybe this church of sacrifice or this cult this voodoo cult still exists i mean yeah it's very possible. possible that it does to this day yeah and i think it's crazy how like in reality, the majority of people who do practice voodoo don't even use voodoo dolls. Yeah, that's know? a big misconception. Is like they all use voodoo dolls or yeah. all like poking needles into them <laughs> and like you know putting curses on people yeah. and people. Yeah, that's, I, that's I think Hollywood that was for you. that was Hollywood. It's the yeah. same thing with witchcraft. Yeah, I mean it's the same thing for a lot of these alternative uh, religions and stuff. Is like Hollywood has made them out to look evil mm-hmm. and used because you know there are some 
elements to it that to you know especially a an average person they might think are spooky or scary or creepy in some way and so then they take that and they just like run with it and and really push it as far as they can and and voodoo is one of those things that people have made really really scary but at the same time i there is like just with every religion there's always going to be people who do take it a dark and scary path right you know and do attribute it to murder and all these horrible things Mm -hmm. i mean there's you know, extremists in every religion that, yeah. that take it, you know, Christians to yeah, it Muslims. Doesn't, doesn't it doesn't matter, matter if, it's, yeah. if it's Wicca or if it's voodoo. I mean, it doesn't matter. There's always going to be people who take the beliefs to the next level mm-hmm. and start doing things literally or start killing in the name of, of faith and God and, mm-hmm. you know, in order to try and better themselves in their God's eyes in some way. So, yeah, I, I see voodoo as a very positive thing that people use to perhaps ca- cast out evil on right. people who they thought were evil or yeah. you know kind of like a supernatural thing right it's, it's really not that much different from like catholicism in the first place and it's yeah interesting how so many people who do believe in catholicism or christianity won't even touch voodoo and and wicca and stuff because they attribute it to evil and yeah. demonic activity when you know and you know people who do rituals that's so scary mm-hmm. if you do rituals yet they do rituals every Sunday too. Yeah, lots of we s- took similarities. Place in Christian rituals. I mean, yeah. you could say that uh, communion. Oh, yeah. is a ritual. Right. It's a. It's a. You know, it's not. It's not as creepy as other rituals, or not as. You know, it doesn't have that sort of cool elements to it. It's very mm-hmm. like straightforward, but I'm sure it's still like a ritual. It is. It's absolutely a ritual. And with Catholicism, how they use like the holy water, and then you know they use herbs or spices for the incense. Yeah, and things like that. Yep. I mean, those are just they a wear, few similarities. The wear gowns yep. and there's candles. I mean, it's it's very similar. Music and yet you know, if you're, worship, right? And, but if you worship things that aren't like God Almighty, and you're mm-hmm. worshiping, you know, these different types of goddesses or gods or you know animals or whatever it may be, then you automatically get frowned upon and like, yeah. oh, you're the weird one. You're the one that's evil. You're the one playing with the devil. Yeah, when. In fact, they're basically doing the same thing. It's, right. it's just funny. The the hypocrisy of organized religion. Yeah. Don't even want to get started on that because <laughs> we'll be here for another five hours. <laughs> but we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. I'm interested to see if anybody from Louisiana has any experience with voodoo. Maybe you've mm-hmm. taken, maybe you practice voodoo. Maybe you've taken part in a voodoo ritual before. Or yeah. maybe you just have been around people that have or are knowledgeable about the subject. I'd be interested to hear is voodoo still a big thing in New Orleans these days? That's what I I hear that you can find it there still, but obviously it's not quite as like at the forefront as it once was in the early 1900s. But I know it's still around in Louisiana specifically. That's really where it's most popular. So yeah. I'd be interested to hear uh, any of your thoughts out there on this topic For in sure. the comments. But we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Lights Out Podcast. If you did, We'd love it if you subscribe to us, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review or rating. Make sure you like the video on YouTube if you're watching. But that is it for us today. And we will see you next week. But until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>